Hey, everybody. It's uh, Kevin here with Before I Forget. And as always, I've got uh, uh, the greatest co-host you could possibly imagine um, in the entire universe. His name is Tyree. Go ahead and say, hey, Tyree. Hey, Tyree. That's my line. Yeah. Uh, you got to come up with your own thing, man. It um, works. Hey, it works. so today we have uh, a guest who's done pretty much all kinds of cool stuff. And we're really excited to talk to him about all of these things. Uh, name is uh, Terry Tucker. He, he's a former SWAT uh, a hostage negotiator, which is kind of it's cool to me. Like, I mean, I, I dig that a lot. And then uh, security consulting, uh, played basketball at the college level, coached basketball. Um, and most importantly, uh, well, I was going to say he was also an author. He wrote a book uh, that we'll get into, um, Sustainable Excellence, uh, the 10 Principles of uh, Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And I would say most importantly – um is a cancer survivor um and kicking ass at it so um uh, terry pass it over to you well kevin tyree thanks for having me on uh, i'm really looking forward to talking with you yeah i'll give you sort of the reader's digest version here grew up on the south side of chicago the oldest of three boys you can't tell this from looking at me or my voice but i'm six foot eight inches tall and actually played college basketball at the citadel in charleston south carolina i've got a brother who's Six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, <laughs> not a prayer's chance you're going to see anything that was uh, that was going on. But uh, you know, our five foot eight inch mother was the boss. Didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were. Whatever mom said, that's the way it went. So. Um, Graduated from the Citadel. I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available to help people find jobs. <laughs> Fortunately, I found that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, their marketing department. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, professionally, started out, as I said, at Wendy's, then made a shift to hospital administration. And it made a huge shift in my life, huge pivot to becoming a police officer. And uh, in addition to being a SWAT team hostage negotiator, I was also a, uh, and you're going to laugh at this, I was an undercover narcotics investigator at six foot eight, became uh, right a school on. security consulting, started a school security consulting business after that, coached girls high school basketball, but for the last almost 11 years, been battling this rare form of cancer. And then I guess finally, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Oh, wow. Can we uh, also interview her? Because we need to talk to somebody in the Space Force. That would be amazing. <clears throat> you could interview her. She probably couldn't tell you much. That's the problem. You know, it's, <laughs> right. It's, yeah. They're right. All, yeah. all I can say is I'm in the Space Force. Well, what's it like? Space Force. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you do? Space Force things. Okay. Also, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Is she also massively tall she is she's six foot two has a nba three-point shot and she went to the air force academy to play basketball so yeah that's Ooh, awesome she'll dunk on you that's... um <laughs> well i only have one leg now so yeah she probably could so uh you know it's <laughs> bad joke sorry bad joke dang hey i i uh man i made a i used to work at range control and at an army base in california and uh these these guys had come in after checking out a range that they were going to go uh, work on. And one guy had come in limping and I hadn't, I hadn't met him previously. And I made the joke is what'd you do? Roll your ankle out there. And he's like, nah, I lost my leg in an IED. 
I was like, oh man, dude, dude, had, dude had a fake leg and everything. It's like, oh, gosh, I feel like an idiot. That's terrible. <laughs> hey, it happens, you know? I mean, you have to be able to laugh at it. Right. Yeah. I just, it, these were like the, the serious fellas in the military. So like yeah. I was, I didn't want to, I was worried for my life for, for the rest of the day, <clears throat> but it is what it is. Um, so dang. Yeah. So, uh, 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 you said marketing at, at, at Wendy's, which did you get all the free hamburgers you wanted? Can you just well, walk up to Wendy's and say, I, I started out in field marketing and then I moved to new product marketing. So there was always stuff going on. And there was this woman in the office and at, at corporate who would come around in the morning and she would be like, Hey, uh, do you want to taste test something at lunch? So we always kind of try to, you know, get in there and, you know, they may give you a hamburger, but they were testing the ketchup or the mustard mm-hmm. or the cheese or whatever. So yeah, you, you could always eat pretty, eat your fill. I mean, sometimes it was frosty. Sometimes it was, you know, new French fries. So they were always testing new stuff. So yeah, I, I ate pretty well while I was at Wendy's. <laughs> Can't be too mad about that. But so, I mean, that, that is a huge shift from, from, from marketing at, uh, at, at Wendy's and then administration in, in, um, in the, the hospital world, right. The, to, you know what, I'm going to go be a law enforcement officer. Like what, what encouraged that? Like where, where did that, how did that play out? Yeah, there, there, there's a backstory. Um, my my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So it was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States, during the Great Depression, late 1920s, early 1930s, and when the gangs, you know, Al Capone and those guys were shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle taking a homicide suspect back to the lockup who jumped him. And my dad was an infant at the time, but he always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, come with us. You know, your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids to live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted. And as I mentioned, when I graduated from college, he was dying of cancer. So I had a choice. I could have said, sorry, dad, you know, I'm going to go blaze my own trail. I'm going to go into law enforcement or out of love and respect for you. I will do what you want me to do. So my first two jobs were in Wendy's and I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I, I followed my own dreams. And that's pretty much, you know, I mean, I was a 37 year old rookie police officer, which by most accounts, it's pretty old to be getting into that. I took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than everybody else did. So, uh, you know, but hey, got through it. Yeah. Yeah. 37 Jeez. is no joke to get through that. I went, I'm, uh, I used to be LAPD and I went through when I oh, was cool. 20, okay. 24, I believe. So at 37, that would be a lot more difficult. So hats off to you for that. Thank you. Well, and Tyree, you were, you were about 37 when you, when you resigned, right? Yeah. Just about. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. 30. 38 yeah no 37 yeah 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 because i mean it was just recently um but yeah no that that is and so talking about a six foot eight undercover narcotics like how how are you undercover <laughs> how does that work well the way the way i explain it and you know the illicit drug business and it is a business is motivated by greed so if you have money you will find somebody, you know, to sell you drug, drugs. And our unit was was pretty much a street-level group. I mean, we did work with the DEA and stuff like that on certain things. But we also did, you know, I, I remember my my partner when we were in uniform, 
she went to the drug unit. She came to the unit after I did. She was working the day shift. I was working the night shift. She called me up. She said, hey, wait, I got these kids. This is in Cincinnati, Ohio. I got these kids coming down from Dayton, and they want to sell mushrooms. Will you buy from them? And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I, I mean, but what's, you know, there's there's got to be a backstory to it. There, I mean, how do you know me? What's the deal? And so I posed as a professor of metallurgy from the University of Cincinnati. Now, the only thing I know about metal is that when you put it out in the rain, it rusts. That's the extent of my knowledge of metal. So I, you know, I had a briefcase and all that stuff. And, and you know, I never changed my appearance. I never grew my hair long. I never grew a beard. I never did any of that. And I met these kids in the park, you know, they jump in the car, they show me the mushrooms, I give them the money. And they, unfortunately, instead of partying in Cincinnati that night, they were guests of the Hamilton County Justice Center. Uh, But, you know, it's, we did stuff like that. I I did a lot of sitting on places and watching and, you know, eventually getting somebody who I thought was buying dope, get them stopped. They had dope on them. You want to work your case off, go back in and buy, let SWAT hit the door, that kind of stuff. That's Mm -hmm. a lot more fun than you know, kind of having guns pulled on you and getting shot at and that. So, Oh yeah. yeah way imagine. more fun. Uh, what, no, so, you know, go ahead, Tyree. Um, sorry to backtrack a little bit. Uh, the training to get to, to start the Academy, I'm sorry, the department, how did that go? A lot of people say it wasn't that difficult. Some people say, yeah, it was pretty tough. How was it for you as a more mature person going through? That was very diplomatically put. Thank you. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I was always an athlete, so I was I was in shape mm-hmm. and that. And, you know, it, it was there was a state agency that ran all law enforcement in Ohio, OPATA. And, you know, you had to run a mile and a half in so many, you had, uh, so much time. You had to do so many push-ups, so many sit-ups. Yeah. And that was the minimum. But we had we had a defensive tactic instructor that, I mean, this guy was – I mean, he was absolutely great. I mean, he got us in great shape. He taught us a lot of stuff. But we'd run, you know, 12 miles somewhere to an apartment building fountain. And he would make us all get in the fountain. And we would do push-ups, you know, you know, three inches of water and sit-ups and all that kind of stuff. So we were soaking wet and then run 12 miles back to the academy and stuff. I mean, so this guy was, I mean, it really did feel like being in the military in, in a lot of ways. But we were... I don't think there's a, a, a more in shape, more knowledgeable group of people than recruits right out of the police academy. I oh, mean, no. yeah. they don't know how they I mean, they know the laws and, they, and they're in great shape. I mean, but, you know, it's kind of like going to law school. Law school doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer. It, it just gives you the background that you need to now figure out, you know, what I need to say in this situation. You know, turning a yes person into a no person or a no person into a yes person. Exactly. A lot of that has to do with your mouth and that little brain between your ears hopefully you can just try to keep it together as a as a new officer coming on um that was uh a lot of fun for me um like i said i went through lapd and my first six months uh of probation was there they were in the harbor division so there was a lot of drug stuff going on so it was really cool to see like undercover narcotic officers working i almost pulled one over once on accident which is a little funny uh (laughs) but you know, it, it's just a cool experience to be able to see that as a young officer. So, you know, it's it's uh, very cool. Yeah, we were, I, you talk about pulling somebody over. We had an informant out uh, one day and, you know, he was, he would go and he'd buy and he was wired. So he would tell us, you know, the guy that sold to me is on this corner and this is what he's wearing. And so we'd go and get him. Mm-hmm. Well, he had just bought like, I don't know, 50 bucks worth of crack and he had it in his car 
and, and, and a, a uniform officer was pulling them over. <laughs> we were on the radio, you know. Let him go. Yeah. You know, seventy-eight, twenty-three. You know, mm-hmm. tell twenty-three, thirty-one to let that one go. You know, it's like because mm-hmm. he was going to have dope in his car yeah, yeah. if he pulled him over. Yeah. But this was a uh, the, the guy who pulled him over. I, I mean, I mean, you you know, I mean, when you when you have a beat, you know, there's beat pride. You know, you mm-hmm. you want to be, you want to know the people are in your beat. You want to, and this guy did. I mean, he'd been running this beat for. 25 years. I mean, he knew where the bad guys lived. He knew where their baby mamas lived. He knew where their mothers lived. He knew where their grandmothers, he knew everything. I mean, if you, if you were a detective looking for somebody, you could just go to him and say, all right, this is what the guy looks like. Who is that? And he'd be able to tell you, and he could tell you, here's probably where you're going to find him. So, you know, it was, it was that pride kind of thing. At least it was for us. I'm sure it was for you as well, you know, in LA. I mean, you guys were we trained with you a couple of times when, on SWAT and stuff like that. Your SWAT team, mm-hmm. you came out to Cincinnati and that, and it was, I mean, you, you guys are like the gold standard. So, yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing for us. It was nice to be able to work around those guys. I worked central division for a minute and that's where I did any of my narcotic work. So I got to do a little bit of not necessarily undercover, but surveillance. Uh, okay. And to be honest, the drug dealers around Skid Row were not the brightest bulbs in the uh, box. So, I mean, we had, camera set up and they deal right underneath the cameras and they try to fight it it's hilarious but uh, over time I really couldn't deal with the narcotic work anymore it was just a little bit too much of a it was just dirty and really the place where I was working the skid row area was rough and it it, to me it got worse and worse with our laws that were passing more and more of these people are coming out uh, from probation um, back into the street where they should not be. Did you guys ever have any issues with that individuals being released and you guys having to deal with these people? Because it was really bad here in California. Oh, absolutely. And you know, that story you just told about not being the brightest. I I remember one night, you know, it was a, it was a quote unquote Friday, you know, we were off for the next two days and, and we were, we were tired. My partner and I, we were just kind of driving around. We literally had Cincinnati police t-shirts on. And we were stopped at a stoplight and this guy comes up to us and he's like, what do you need? <laughs> and we looked at him like, and we pointed to our t-shirts. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we were, we, this is going to sound bad. We didn't really want to do anything. You know, it was like, we didn't want to take enforcement action or anything like mm-hmm. that. And we kind of looked at him like, you know, we're the, we're the police go away. Yeah. And, and, and he was like, no, I, yeah, I know. What do you need? It was like, okay, you are too dumb to live amongst us right now. We're going to have to actually do something about you, yeah. you know, and, and, but, but it's stuff like that. I, I mean, we did, we, Cincinnati was very liberal. Um, you know, I'll never forget my very first search warrant. I got 127 grams of crack, $25,000 in cash and five guns. And the guns alone had a, had a five year, they increased the penalty for, you know, five years for every gun. Mm-hmm. And the judge was like, well, this guy's, this guy doesn't have any record. I'm going to give him three years. It's like, what do you mean three? It was 127 grams of crack, which is a lot of crack. I mean, we, we hit his cookhouse and, you know, and it was cooling. He just cooked it up and everything. And it was like, you're going to give him three years. He's like, well, you know, he doesn't have a bad record. That's just because he hasn't been caught yet. You know, I mean, so there was a lot of, a lot of frustration about stuff like that where you know you, you you almost felt like they were out before you'd finished all your paperwork and it even testified in front of the grand jury and I mean, was that your experience as well happened all the time 
literally we would as soon as all these new laws pass we would write uh we would pick up somebody for sales good sales uh take them back to the station clean them up get them over to booking get them going they're they're out of our hands we get back to the station start the report go out for lunch and they be right back out because they're nonviolent criminals so there's really no heavy bail here in California so it's it's really rough. It's extremely frustrating. That's one of the reasons why I didn't want to stick around for it so much because it's just very hard to put so much work into this neighborhood. Like you said, you love your beat. You love your area. But, you know, it's sometimes uh, the laws make it difficult for you to do your own job. And that's, they, they do. And, and, and that's why we, I don't know if you had opportunity very often. We did not have it very often, but we had it occasionally where we could work with the DEA. And, and the thing I loved about working with the feds was, for example, in Ohio, if, if I wanted to charge you with a gun offense, I had to have the gun and the gun had to work. So I had to take it, you know, to CIS and test fire it and say, yeah, the gun worked. And then I could charge you with a gun offense. You know, the feds could be up on somebody, you know, on a wiretap mm-hmm. and the guy mentions a gun. Well, that's that's a federal gun charge. They never have to see the gun. They never have to recover the gun. It was it was wonderful. I mean, that's why you see a lot of the you know, you hear about, well, it's a 50 count indictment. Yeah, it's because the guy said gun 30 times, you know, and there's there's 30 gun charges. And that so to work with the feds was kind of neat. I mean, to go down to the, you know, to the federal building and go into a skiff and, you know, we're going to read you in on this uh, um search warrant that we're doing or, or a wiretap that we're doing and things like that well, was pretty, was pretty interesting, but I don't know how it was for you guys, but for us, it was, you know, to do, to do a search warrant, it was a, usually a page and a half affidavit and then the warrant, but mm. for the feds, it was like a 30 page affidavit. And so that's why they liked working locally, you know, cause it was easier for me to get a search warrant yep. than it was for them to get a federal search warrant or federal wiretap. So it, you know, that was kind of quid pro quo. You know, you guys take this guy federally, but we'll do all the paperwork for you. And, and that way we can we can work together on it. Yeah, whatever works as long as with us, as long as we clear everything through L.A. Clear, let everyone know that, hey, we're all working together on this. Everything's yeah. fine. Communication yeah. is key. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, so um, so how did how did you end up in uh, like hostage negotiation then? Um, which which came first, the, the, the uh, undercover stuff, or I mean, how did, how did that transition happen? The undercover stuff came first, um, and then there was an opening uh, in on, on the negotiators, and I'm sure most of your listeners know this, but you know, SWAT is usually divided into two teams. You know, there's the tactical team, which are the officers who get all the the toys and the guns and you know the Bearcats and all that stuff, and then there's the negotiators. And if we do our job, then the tactical guys don't get to use all their toys. And so sometimes they don't like that, but you know, it, it was, they had an opening. And so, you know, I, I put in for it. You had to do a physical fitness test. You had to meet with the psychologist. You had to take psychological exams. And then the team met. And if one person on the team said, no, we don't want Tucker on it. You know, he's out. Then you didn't get in. So everybody it had to be unanimous because it really was a team. We worked, uh, I, I want to say back in the 90s, Samuel L. Jackson did a movie called The Negotiator. Oh, and, and it was a great movie, but it made him out to be like Superman. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the guy did everything. Yeah. And sometimes people will be like, was well, that the way it was? Like, absolutely not. That is totally <laughs> not the way it was. I mean, when the, nobody could do that. I mean, the guy was amazing. And so, you know, it was, well, I, I'd like to be on this. You know, I want to be part of the best. And these guys were usually SWAT gets the best officers, the best equipment, the best training. So I, I, I got on and, 
And we trained basically by doing scenarios. We worked with a psychologist who would be at our trainings and stuff. And I'll never forget my very first, like, okay, we're going to do a scenario here. You're, you're going to be the primary. Okay, good. It was very simple, you know, locked door, you know, guys got a hostage. No big deal. Mm-hmm. The whole time the hostage is screaming. I spent about 90% of the time talking to the hostage, you know, and they're like, you understand that you're supposed to negotiate with the hostage taker, not so much the hostage. You know, you can, we kind of, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, talk about feeling like an idiot. You know, I thought I knew what I was doing, but it was very clear starting out that, but I had a lot to learn. Exactly. So, That's why we're you know. here for training, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 But it, I mean, it, it, and, and the big, the best part of training was the debrief, yeah. you know, was okay. You know, what went right? What went wrong? What could we do better? Did you, you know, and especially when the psychologist would jump, you know, it's like, well, did you think this person might be schizophrenic and they were off their medicine? Gee, no, I never even thought about it. You know? So, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of learning. It was a huge learning curve, at least for me. And, and, you know, there were things that, that didn't work out. I remember one time we were, we were negotiating with a, a 15 year old kid. He had barricaded himself in an apartment and he had a gun and we had tried, you know, all the tactics, everything that would work on, you know, an adult and nothing was working. He wouldn't come out. And so we were like, all right, we called the timeouts. Like, look, we'll call you back. So we all got together and somebody, one of the older guys was like, he's a kid. He's 15 years old. Let's be a parent. Let's scare him. So, you know, we were like, have tactical, break a window and throw in a flashbang. And and uh, for those who don't know what a flashbang is, it's just a, a loud bang and a, and a bright light. And within 10 minutes, he was out. You know, I think we just scared him. But nobody thought about that. You know, it's like, we're going to use all these tactics. And it's like, he's a kid, scare him. Mm-hmm. And we did. Yeah, so. Sometimes it's the most simple plan, right? It is. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Been there, done that. Uh, I don't. I haven't really been on too many like hostage negotiation kind of a thing. I've been on plenty of perimeters while that was going on. So it's oh, always yeah. it's always cooler to listen in uh, on what's going on uh, on the radio if you can get the proper channel. Uh, it, it's it's just very interesting to hear the the things that are going on the 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 nuances of. All right, we're going to try this, and if this doesn't work, we're going to try this, and then we got all this. The, the area is covered. The perimeter is good. Like it's just like a well-oiled machine when it's all working, and it no is. one, no one has to think. It's just happening, and it, it's very cool to observe. But that's you know, as you know, that's training. You yeah. know, the more mm-hmm. training you do, the the more you know what to do in these scenarios that are all different. You know, they you you don't know. And and when I first started on SWAT, we didn't have the the encrypted radios and everything. So, you know, everybody could listen in, yeah. you know, it's like everybody go to channel two or, you know, to channel eight or whatever. And everybody, citizens, you know, if you had a scanner, you could, you could listen in. When I was in patrol, my partner and I had a scanner and we could listen to, you know, the, the neighboring districts or the neighboring uh, towns and stuff like that, you know, what was going on and, and that. So, but, you know, then we got the encrypted radios and, then you couldn't listen in and yeah. so it's a lot of fun. The thing is so, though, uh, even with encrypted radios, we were having issues with people with technology now using their iPhone apps to listen in on our uh, radio calls. So that was an issue. Really? Yeah. It, this was around 2012, 13, somewhere in there. So technology had moved on quite a bit from when I'd started in that brief amount of time. So we were, yeah. had to be, you know, knowledgeable about that kind of stuff too. I mean, when I was doing it, we really didn't have, I mean, cell phones were out, but they, you know, it wasn't like everybody had one. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, when we would go on a call up, the, we had a special uh, unit, a special group that was attached to us that would, you know, 
call the phone company and they take down the landline, yeah. you know, in, in the apartment or the house or whatever it was. So mm-hmm. the person could only talk to us and, yeah. you know, we didn't want them calling, you know, their mother or their spouse or whoever it was and that. So, they, I mean, they, they had this whole thing figured out and, I mean, it was always funny when they forget to call the phone company and put the line back on and people are like, my phone doesn't work. Nothing's oh, working. Sorry. Yeah. That was our fault. Mm, oops. <laughs> so was there, uh, so, um, so I'm, I'm a drill sergeant in the reserves and I train my candidates to go to drill sergeant school and then, you know, mentor them beyond that. Right. And I had a conversation with them, uh, last month, I believe it was. And I asked the question, when do you become a drill sergeant? Um, is it completion of school? Is it after your first full cycle? Is it your first time being in front of trainees? What, at what point do you become a drill? And I got, a, I got a wide variety of answers. <clears throat> so kind of asking you the same thing. So like when it comes to, let's say, you know, being a hostage negotiator I mean, you, you go to your training, you get certified to do it. And then, but at what point um, are you officially, do you consider yourself a hostage, nego- a true uh, hostage negotiator? Um, was is there a, a defining moment for you or, you know, like, was there, how'd that work out for you? Yeah. It, you know, I, I guess it would help, help to explain kind of how, how things are done, you know? And, and so there, there's a primary, there's somebody who's talking to the individual who's either barricaded or taken hostages. And then there's another negotiator sitting right next to them with usually just headphones on and listening to everything that's going on. And then there's another group, you know, maybe three, four, five of us, that are out, you know, working the crowd, you know, trying to talk to relatives or friends or, you know, why are we here? What happened? What's going on? And so as the primary, you might get a note from your secondary that would say, don't talk about his mother Hmm. because he had a big fight with his mom and, you know, and and it it came to the point where he's barricaded himself now and stuff like that. So it really was kind of a group effort. And you started out sort of being in the, you know, in the bullpen, so to speak, where you're, you're interviewing people and why are we here and that, and then you kind of move to the to the second chair, so to speak. And then I remember the, the my very first where I was I was the primary, and, and this guy this guy had tried to kill himself. Um, and and this probably started at eight nine o'clock at night. He slit his wrist, and that didn't work. And for some reason, he thought it was a good idea to turn the uh, gas on in his oven and stick his head in the oven. I, I, I don't know why he thought that would kill him, but it, it obviously didn't. And then he called a family member and the family member was smart enough to call, uh, you know, crisis line or the police. And, and so we there and we're negotiating when he's got a gun now and it's probably three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. And I was talking to him and finally got him. Honestly, I think I just warmed up. I think he was just exhausted. And he was like, I want to come out. And I'm like, okay, good. I want you to come out. I want you, you know, want you want you to come out safely. And, but here's how we're going to do it. And, and, you know, here's, Put the gun down, take the phone with you, do what the officers outside tell you to do. I said, I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face after. Yeah, I really like that. Really like that. He's like, okay. So he hangs up the phone, which isn't uncommon because we're all conditioned when a cop calls over to hang up the phone. And probably 15 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. Mm. And I thought, you didn't. He did. Shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in right underneath his skin at his temple, went around his scalp and came out the other side. That's a very Never common. penetrated his scalp. Yeah. Never pe- I, I'm thinking, okay, three times you tried to kill yourself. Three times God was like, absolutely not. Not tonight. We're not, we're not having any of this. Mm-hmm. And, but it was, you know, I, was, I thought he killed himself. I thought, great, my very first one, this guy 
you know, put a bullet in his head. And he certainly wanted to, but thank God he he was not successful that night. So, I mean, very bloody, but in terms of, you know, seriousness, really not, really not that serious. Yeah, not too serious. Dude, That's, that is wild. Yeah. I know. I mean, Tell me. I, I, I mean, you hear stories like that in the military, you know, in, in Vietnam, right, where a, you know, a soldier gets shot in the helmet and, it, you know, enters the helmet, but then rings the helmet and then never enters the bit. In the man, that's crazy. It's, I know. I'm thinking, how do you? I mean, are you kind of cross your? How how did you do it, that? It's, you know, it, was it? It's it's all about you the know, angles. Where was your head? I, I mean, it's almost an impossible shot. Absolutely. It's like the last minute he pulled it or something. Yeah, I I, I mean, yeah. I, we never found out how. We just knew he went to the hospital. You know, and I think they kept him overnight, and then he went to jail. When I was a rookie, there were several individuals way back in the day that got into a shootout with officers and they got out. Exact same thing. They took headshots and grazes all over. Tons really? of a lot of people. If you ever go, if you ever find yourself in Wilmington and you see people with weird scars on their skulls, it's graze marks. Wow. Mm-hmm. From all sorts of shootings over their lifetime, really. Not just from the police. Rough life. So, so you, so you, so you, you, you ran that for a while and then you and the family pick up and you move down to Texas. Correct. Um, and, uh, and, and then you started this, this, uh, security consulting business. Um, what, what prompted that move, uh, from, I mean, I've never been to Ohio, but I hear terrible things. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so, I mean, I can understand from, from that perspective, no, but like what, what, uh, what, 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 uh, what prompted that move? My wife, I mean, my wife has always been the primary breadwinner. You know, I always say I married up, she married down. So, you know, it was kind of one of those things where um, she lost her job in Cincinnati, wasn't able to find another one. She's in the financial services industry, found a a great job in Houston. And so I left and, you know, I I didn't want to leave. I, I, you know, I loved it. I felt it was my purpose in life and that, but it wasn't who I was, if that makes any sense. You know, I mean, I, I saw I saw a few people, you know, like lieutenants who've been on for 40, 45 years, and they, they needed to retire. They should have retired a long time ago, but they couldn't because their whole identity was tied to, you know, that gun and that badge and their authority. Mm-hmm. But but that wasn't me, you know, and I, I you know, I, I had a, a bachelor's degree. I had a master's degree. I spent a couple of years in law school. I had all the SWAT training. And our daughter went to a private school. And, and I remember going to the school and it's like, oh my gosh, this place is like wide open. And so I went to the business manager. I said, how about if I do a security plan for you? And he was like, yeah, sure. And so, you know, I, I did it for free and they liked it. And then it was just word of mouth where people were, you know, I, I worked pretty much with private independent schools because in all honesty, they had the money. And, you know, so I would either you know, do a physical assessment of their campus. I would, you know, write their policies and procedures on safety and security. I would train their staff and things like that. And it, it was it, it was great because I could work when I wanted to work and I could work with who I wanted to work with. And then, you know, when basketball season was going on, I could be like, no, I'm going to be a coach now and kind of, you know, put that on the back burner. So it, it was it was really a great opportunity for me and, and got to travel all over the United States and do that for different schools. Was the transition from police work to this, was it a scary thing? It's not something that, hey, that's a very stable job you have. You know, you have health care, you have all those benefits, you got your pension. 
to walk away from that and start a completely new thing is is something that's extremely heavy. And a lot of people always wonder, like, and I always wonder, how did you feel during the transition for that? Was it a, oh, no, did I make a mistake? Uh, oh, no, this is great, and this is exactly where I want to be. Um, maybe I should try something else. What was the, the thought for your family? Because they're also dealing with it also. Yeah, and, and you know, if, if I kind of go back to the beginning, you know, when I, uh, when we were living in California, right after my wife and I got married, um, we were living in Santa Barbara and a circular came in the mail that from Santa Barbara city college. It said, if you take it and pass this course, you can apply to be a reserve police officer with any organ or with any uh, agency within the state. And now my wife had not had married me when I was a suit and tie, you know, eight to five Monday through Friday kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that conversation at dinner that night. It's like, Hey hun, uh, you know, I'd kind of like to try this. And she was incredibly supportive of me. You know, I, I was a customer service manager for an academic publishing company at the time. And so I would work all week at that job. And then on Friday night, I'd come home, put on my uniform. Well, I I, I went, I took the course, I passed it. I got on with Santa Barbara PD as a reserve. And so Friday night, I'd come home after work, put on my uniform, go to roll call, and I'd work all night. And I'd come home, you know, seven, eight o'clock Saturday morning. And my wife used to say, you would come home exhausted but with this big grin, with this big smile on your face. And she said, I knew that that's, you, you had found your purpose. You had found what you wanted to do in life. Yeah, so she so had supported me. And so when we moved to Cincinnati after our daughter was born, I'm like, look, I want to do this full time. And she supported that decision as well. So when it came time for her, you know, to say, hey, now it's, now I got to move, you know, and it was, it was hard. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I didn't want to do it, mm-hmm. but you know, I, my family was everything to me, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, you, you know, I, I mean, for me, it was, you know, you always go out with the guys after, you know, after a shift or something like that to the bar or, you know, SWAT call ups, let's go out afterward. It's like, no, I want to go home. I want to be with the people that, that energize me, that, that I love, that I care about and that care about me. I, th- those are the people that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to have mental issues because I'm grounded with these people and that, and, and I never did. And, you know, I was shot at a couple of times, you know, had some pretty hairy things happen, but it was like that, that was my sanctuary. And so mm-hmm. when it was, it came time for me to support her, it was like, okay, that's, it's the right thing to do. You know, I mean, my, my parents taught us the value of family and it was something that, you know, came out when it was time to support my wife when we had to move. Yeah. You got to do it. It's a uh, hats off to her because I, like uh, my wife, when I left, like, uh, she was supportive, like, Hey, if this is something that you want to do. This is something that you want to change. Then, and, and it's something that's good for your heart that I'm good for you. I mean, I'm not, I'm good for you, but you know, go for it. So, so family support, that support system, that base in that kind of, uh, situation is always important. What, what was your, what was your reason to get into law enforcement? Cause it's, I mean, was it family? Was it, you just wanted to help your community? What, you know, what made you want to do that? As a child, I loved, and this is going to make you laugh, uh, Eddie Murphy movies. So Beverly Hills Cop, I wanted to be Eddie Murphy. He was the man. He always solved everything. He didn't need any help. You know, he's always just out there handling crimes from different cities. And, you know, I'm like, I want to do that. He's a funny guy. The girls loved him. I want to be a police officer. This is when, you know, way, way, you know, I'm a child. Eventually, I joined the Army Infantry what are you going to do when you get out of the army and your infantry? I have no idea. Let's be a police officer. I actually applied for 
the CHP and failed by one point because I didn't try. I, I thought it was just it's going to happen because you know I'm infantry. I just came back from right. combat. It, it, police work is easy. No, I got I went and uh, took the LAPD test maybe the day or two after and passed it. No problem because it was just a writing test. But like now I'm thinking about it, like it's not a you don't really think about everything that goes along with that job. You always think it's going to be all kind of bitch and chases and, you know, uh, take all these drugs off the street. But man, there's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> there's so much, uh, just things that you don't really expect. There's child abuse calls that you have to deal with. Uh, and I'm glad that they prepared us for that before we even started because there's a lot of officers who have been on for a lot longer and like, Hey, we never got any of this kind of training. So it's good for you guys to get that. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think you really, we're asking law enforcement to be everything. Mm-hmm. No. And, and it's sort of the catch all these days and, and it's just not, it's just not fair. No. You know, it's just not, it's not something that you can ask. I mean, the, the stuff I mean, and you guys saw it in the army, you know, the stuff you see human beings shouldn't have to see, you know, the, the man's inhumanity to man and and the things that, that, I mean, I remember my, my partner and I went on a noise run one night. It was a Friday night. We, we were off the weekend and there was one neighbor calling another neighbor, you know, tell them to turn their TV down. It's like, you know, too bad neighbors can't talk to each other, you know, but yeah. like, okay, sure. We'll send the police to knock on the door. Single mom, two adorable little kids, just absolutely gorgeous. The next night, she drowned those kids in the bathtub. Jesus. And we were like, you know, did we miss something on that Friday night run? I mean, do we, you know, I mean, and it, it was, it was a 10 second run. It was like, not, not, could you please turn your TV down? Yes, I will. Okay, fine. Oh, you cute kid, you know, and, and it was over. Yeah. But it was like, did we miss something? And, and, you know, I, I always, you know, two little kids, probably two years old. It was like, they're never going to get to grow up, never going to get to, you know, go to school, get married, have kids, nothing. Yeah. I had something similar. It was, uh, I worked domestic violence for quite a while and, uh, everyone knows that's one of the most dangerous calls you can go on because you know, the emotion, uh, when that's all separated, uh, you, you learn to, I don't know, uh, you interview the victim, you learn more about this person. You try to set her up with some kind of, uh, plan. Next time this happens, Hey, X, Y, Z escape plan, call 911. Let's go take you to a shelter, all that kind of stuff. And for weeks, everything was going great. And then all of a sudden, while I'm driving them to work, hey, uh, that person killed themselves. Like, wow, all the work. Like, what did I do wrong? And it, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just some people, you know, you, you can't can't pin that on you. You know, the world's too heavy to try to take everything like that on your shoulders. So sometimes you just got to let it go and try yeah, not to get to exist. In cases like that. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't a cop, but I mean, I, I would imagine the, the, the same rule kind of applies when it comes to your friends that, uh, you know, attempt or commit suicide <clears throat> um, or in those cases, you know what I mean? Where bad things happen and you're like, what, what, what did I miss? What, what, what was I seeing that I was ignoring or that I was overlooking or I thought was a small thing. And you're right. Like Terry, you, you, you can't take on all of this stuff and say, it's my fault, but the human uh, aspects of us of being human, right? Like that, that's, that's where that comes from. Like we, we want to uh, do better for ourselves. We want to do better for um, the people in our lives. And we want to be able to see those things um, and catch them early on. Um, 
And I would imagine if you, if you, if you care um, as a law enforcement officer, if you even remotely care, then you're going to have that same mentality. I mean, it's the same thing when we were, you know, deployed to Iraq and, you know, you, you would encounter these kids or, you know, people and you start to kind of care about like their world and their lives. And you kind of want to protect their neighborhoods a little better, but then something happens and it's just, you know, like, well, you know, what did I miss? How did I not see that guy? Or how did we not, how did we, how did we, how did I allow this to develop and become what it is? And it's, uh, it's, it, you try and take on all these responsibilities on our, on our own, but there's gotta be like a, a shift in your, in your mindset, I think, to kind of get away from that. I mean, we want to be able to do that, but we can't manage and control everything. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's a big thing. Um, so and I think, uh, when you talk about, so you wrote your book, um, so you will, let's backtrack a little bit. So you were diagnosed with a very rare cancer. Um, and <clears throat> well, you, you, I can't, I saw the name, but I couldn't, I couldn't really pronounce it because I can't words. pronounce it. I've been living with it for 11 years, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a type of it's uh, called acro litiginous malignant melanoma. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so you, 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 you developed that and it, it happened and you, you were, you were put on a, a drug, was it called in, interferon? Yes. And, and that was to keep it from coming back. And that in itself ended up almost killing you. Um, I saw a 108 degree temperature. That's insane. Like you might as well just, you're slow baking at that point. Well, and, and the funny, the funny thing about that was is, and so the interferon, I was on it for five years and it became toxic to my body. And I ended up in the emergency room and I was freezing. I, I was so cold. And I mean, they were, you know, putting all these warm blankets on me and stuff like that. And, and thank God for my wife. Cause she looked at him. Oh, I, I mean, she said, you need to take his temperature. And they're like, well, we just took it. It's like, you need to take it again. And so they took it and it was 104. And so she runs out of the nurse runs out of the room and they come back, you know, with the doctor and they take it again and it's 106 and then they take it again and it's 108 and they rip the the blankets off I me. Mean, now I'm freezing. I, I mean, I am, I've never been colder in my life. And I remember I, I had sweatpants on, but my torso was totally bare. And I remember lifting my head up and my, my torso looked like the hood of a car, like in August that had been out in the sun all day. There was just heat waves coming up off my torso and they literally, I mean, it was almost like a code because they packed me in ice. They were, and imagine being as cold if you've ever, if you've ever been in your life and they're packing you in ice. Mm-hmm. And so you're even more cold. And then they gave me a hypothermic type drug. It was, I remember it was orange. I, I don't remember a lot because I was, was kind of out of it. But I, my wife told me later and talk about insensitive, the nurse manager pulled her out of the, the bay where I was and said, you better prepare yourself. I've only seen two people with a fever of 108 degrees, and neither one of them survived. Now, why the hell would you say that to somebody's, you know, yeah. spouse that, you, that you're working on? But They're detached. Yeah, that, that was how I survived that. I have absolutely no idea. I just remember waking up in the ICU. And, and when, I'm sorry, uh, when did you actually learn that you had this, the cancer? Uh, 2012. Um, acrolitigenous melanoma is a, is a type of melanoma that has nothing to do with the sun. Most of us think that, you know, melanoma is too much exposure to the sun. It affects the pigment, the melon mm-hmm. in our skin. 
This has nothing to do with it. This is a rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And when I was coaching high school basketball, I had a callus break open uh, right below my third toe and initially didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But a couple of weeks of not healing, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine, took, took an x-ray, said, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. He does, sends it off to pathology. And then two weeks later, I get the call from him. And the thing that scared me was, he said, Tara, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. Jeez. And it was like, you've got this rare form, go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and have them treat you. So that started the odds. And melanoma back then was a, it was a death sentence. They didn't have anything to, to help, which is why they put me on the interferon. Yeah. I, I so, know the, I know the story. My father passed from that and, uh, having that extra that early warning is everything because uh, it doesn't take long for it to get up up in steps or uh stages sorry yeah. and uh yeah it's fair i'm happy that you got the the treatment that you needed to you know stick around because you know family man you got all those big kids to take care of big big brothers and whatnot well it, yeah i mean it, it's it's funny because I, my wife and i were just talking the other day that when i was diagnosed the oncologist pulled her out of the exam room and she said he's, he's not, he's going to be lucky to live five years. Is he going to be okay with that? Mm. And she kind of laughed at her like, you have no idea who you're dealing with. So yeah, go ahead and tell him, you know, he's not going to be one of these people that falls apart. And then it just became, I mean, kind of like you guys, you know, when you go into battle, you prepare, you do the best you can. And there are so many unknowns that Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't know what's going to happen, but you, you try to figure out all the contingencies and figure out what your plans are going to be. It was the same thing with me. I, I mean, you know, five years of interferon, ICU, 108 degree fever, cancer came back immediately after stopping the interferon. Mm-hmm. They took off my foot in 2018. In the middle of the COVID pandemic, I found out my entire lower leg was full of cancer. They had to amputate my leg above the knee. And it was literally, it's COVID, told my wife to drop me off at the hospital. I could have no one with me. There was my doctor had to get special permission to do the surgery. And I was the only person in the entire pre-op area. I mean, talk about mentally. How did you deal with that? It's got to be eerie. I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it literally on Thursday afternoon, I found out I had tumors in my lungs and I was going to have to have my leg amputated. And on Tuesday I had my leg amputated. So I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. I was, I was supposed to be in the hospital for, 10 days to two weeks after the amputation to learn how to, you know, function without a leg, you know, occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. My, or my surgeon was like, because of COVID, you're going to be in the hospital for 48 hours and then you're going home. Wow. So it was, I was lucky. I had an occupational therapist who came to our house who helped my wife say, you know, take that rug away. You know, you're going to need grab bars in the shower. You're going to need all this, you know, I was, was lucky to have that. Cause I don't know how we would have done it. Otherwise, I mean, we, it, it, it really seems like, I mean, like with, with everything, it kind of seems like it's, it, it, it was just, there's this attempt to just continue to put you down and put you down and put you down and, 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 and you just wouldn't go down. Like you have this, this level of resiliency that maybe you didn't even realize that you had, but you know, over time, I mean, it may, maybe it's a human thing too, right? This, like this desire to survive and to live and to thrive. Um, and so that's, and that's, and that's kind of where you got the idea for your book. I'd imagine, um, you know, um, sustainable excellence, like how do you become excellent? How do you, how do you get to that point 
what I mean, and really the how do you even define it uh, in, in, in terms of your own personal needs and your own personal life? And then like, how do you maintain that? So uh, let's, let's talk about your books some more. I see it there in the background, actually. Um, Great but, marketing, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so like, yeah. So, so uh, I mean, so how do you, how do you de- define excellence? Yeah, I get that question a lot, you know, like, well, how do you define excellence? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, what do you mean? You don't know. You wrote the book, you idiot. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I'm like, the way I define excellence, I think, is the way well, – let me give you a example. If you and I looked at a sports team or a symphony or, or anything in life, you know, you may look at that sports team and say, man, they are excellent. I may look at them and say, yeah, I think they're good, but I don't think they're excellent. I think excellence, like beauty, is sort of in the eye of the beholder. You have to define it for yourself. You have to say, okay, I think this is excellent. I think I've risen to the level of excellence. And then once you've defined that and you feel that you're at that at that level, how do you sustain it? Because I, I've seen people, and I mean, I'm old enough that, you know, I've seen people be like, yeah, I made it to the top of the mountain, you know, and they put their feet up on the desk and they pour themselves a shot and they're like, I've arrived. And then six months or a year later, boom, somebody passes them up. And you're like, wait a minute. I, I, you know, I was at the top of the mountain. How did that happen? Well, it happened because you didn't sustain that excellence. And sustain basically is... How do you figure out different ways to innovate, to deliver your product, to whatever it is? You can't stay stagnant. I mean, so many, I think, sports teams do that. You know, they, they, you're an NCAA champion or you're a Super Bowl winner, and you're like, you know, there we are. Well, you can't just stay. You can't just say, I've arrived or we've arrived. What are we going to do to get better? You know, what are we going to do to get better next year and things like that? And, and people don't do that. They think, well, I put all this energy and all this – this effort into being excellent, I'm just going to, okay, you know, I'm going to sit back for a minute. Well, you can do that, but don't be surprised if, you know, you're not in the playoffs next year or or you're not in the Super Bowl next year because somebody else, while you were laying back having a good time, they were working. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of that old saying, you know, time heals everything. It's not time that heals. It's the work you do during that time that heals everything. So, you know, you have to define excellence and then you have to constantly adapt and innovate so that you can, you can sustain that excellence. Uh, yeah, no, that, uh, so, um, that reminds me a lot of like when I listened to like Kobe, uh, I was thinking the same you know. thing. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Cause that's great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah, no. And that, and that's exactly how he talked. I mean, he, he would talk about being that guy that's, you know, um, coming in at like three o'clock in the morning to, to be at practice. And like his teammates would be like, yeah, I thought I was getting there early and there, there, Kobe's already there. And he's not just like getting dressed out and ready to go to the court. He's been on the court. He's already sweaty. Uh, he's already after it. And that was an all day, everyday thing. Um, and I, I like how you put that it's, it, time doesn't heal everything. It's, it's the work that you do. Um, that's, I mean, that, that it's, it's easy. I think, like you said, like when, when, whenever you hit your goal, it's easy to rest on your laurels and be like, you know what? I've, I've done it. Here I am. I've made it. I'm at the top. Um, it can't get any better, but it, it can get worse. You know, it can go downhill. Um, and then, and then it, like you said, somebody else can come along and raise the ceiling and be like, well, it actually can be better. Uh, if you come at it from this other angle that you didn't see, um, and do you think with, with folks, do you think that 
it's difficult for them to sustain that excellence because maybe they're not staying innovative. They're not seeing these other angles or they just become lazy once, once they get to that point. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly it. And, and, and I, I think about, gee, how much effort did it, did it cost you in, in, in time and, and, and attention to detail and all that stuff that got you there and now you're going to sit back and now you're going to coast? It's like, no, you know, you need to redouble your efforts. You really need to, if you want to sustain it. And I'm not, you know, some people are like, you know, once they get to that point, they're like, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm good to be here. And if you're one of those people, that's fine. But I, I'm not one of those people. I don't, you know, how do I get better? I, I, you know, you talk about Kobe. I remember hearing a story where during a game, he, he took a shot, but he got hit on the elbow and he missed the shot and they lost. And, you know, you go in the locker room after the game, you, you debrief, and he, he grabbed the manager, and he went to the practice gym, and he's like, all right, I'm going to shoot like a 1,000 shots, and every time I shoot, I want you to hit me on the elbow because that's never going to happen again. And the other part of it is being coachable, for lack of a better – I mean, you guys were in the Army. You train people. You, I mean, there are people that are like, eh, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. And there are people like, yeah, tell me, tell me, how can I be better? And I remember – hearing a story about Coach K when he was coaching the Olympic team, Mike Krzyzewski, and Kobe was on the team. And it was the game right before the team was leaving to go to Beijing for the Olympics. And Kobe was taking all kinds of ridiculous shots. And LeBron went to Coach K after the, after the game and said, uh, Coach, uh, that's, that's, that's not acceptable. Yeah. I mean, he's taking bad shots. He's, he's taking terrible shots. We shouldn't be practicing that stuff. He's like, you need to talk to him. Like, okay. So they were getting ready to get on the plane. Coach K calls him into the, calls Kobe into the office and says, I need to talk to him. He said, the game yesterday, he said, you took way too many really bad shots. They were not good for our team. They're not going to help us win in Beijing. You, you can't do that. And Coach K tells us, he said, it got dead silent. And Kobe looked at Coach K and said, is that all? Coach K said, yeah, that's it. Kobe said, you know what, coach? You're right. Those were terrible shots. I'll never take them again. Let's get on the plane and go. You know, I, I mean, so that's being coachable. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, you know, one of the greatest NBA players of all times, having your coach say those were not appropriate shots. And you're coachable enough to say, you know, thinking back on it, yeah, those weren't good shots. I won't do that again. That's not good for the team. Maybe good for me, but it's not good for the team. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of a lot of what you're talking about, uh, definitely reminds uh, reminds me of when we recorded with William Brandon um, and his his principle of the whole get naked um, and, and and what that acronym actually means. I mean, you're talking about like um, never quitting, you know, accepting accepting failure, um, killing mediocrity, like becoming the the better version of yourself, exposing your fears, and doing the work. Like that is like spot on. Like you guys, like y'all need to talk. Um, <laughs> you need to like. You can communicate with each other because I mean y'all y'all are speaking the same language and and pushing the, the same goal and 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 you have these same beliefs and the same drive to be successful in what you're doing like it, it's 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 actually like I, I feel like I'm having the, the the I feel like we're talking with him again actually it's just, it's just the same I mean I just got to can't put it into words right now it feels like it's 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 there's a lot of parallels and and I, and I really enjoy this because that's kind of like what we want, what we want to have on the show and like what Tyree and I are kind of trying to do with our, with our show even because um, <clears throat> you know, the bigger, the bigger, the, the, the bigger things can be, the, the, the more we can put people out uh, to get your word out, to get his word out, to get other people's word out to, to help other people. And it's not just about like, don't be wrong. Like we, we, we want to promote your book. We want to promote your, uh, what you're, what you're saying. 
um, but the meaning of what you're saying and how it can potentially help other people um, and and become the the better version of themselves. That's what we want, right? So maybe it maybe it's reading your book, maybe it's listening to um, a speech by another guy, maybe it's listening to our show, maybe it's watching a, a YouTube channel, whatever it is. Um, and uh, and so man, I can uh, I just I don't know, my mind is kind of being a little blown right now. Um, so I'm kind of summing over my words, but, uh, yeah, no, uh, Tyree say something. I got, I got to think of my words right now. <laughs> so what is life now for you? Uh, it, uh, I, I don't know. I want to call you a completely cancer survivor. Is there any more traces of cancer still there? Um, what is, what has been different for you? Um, besides losing the leg, <laughs> What has been different for you uh, moving forward from that? How have you how have you bounced back? No one's going to be able to bounce back from that easy. Well, unfortunately, I haven't. I, I still have tumors in my lungs. Um, I go every three weeks, um, Monday through Friday. I'm infused with a clinical trial drug now. It's, it's drug not approved, you know, by the FDA, and I'm kind of the guinea pig. I, me and several other people around the world. And um, I react very, very violently to it. I, I throw up about two hours afterwards. I, I shake violently. I got a headache, I fever, all this kind of stuff. And I've been doing this for two and a half years. And I started with some other people at the University of Colorado hospitals. Unfortunately, those people have passed away. But the way I, the way I look at it is this. You know, one of the things that I learned being part of, of team sports, and, and for me it was sports. You know, I think whatever team you're on, you, you can learn this. You know, I started playing when I was nine and I, I played basketball all the way up till I was 21. And I think what team sports teaches you is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job and, and you guys, I'm sure, too, you know, being in, in the army, you know, if I don't hold up my end, somebody gets killed. You know, I mean, for me, it was if I didn't do my job on a basketball team, not only did I let myself down, but I let my teammates down, my coaches down, my fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And, and this, this clinical trial drug is probably not going to save my life. But the way I look at it and the, and, and the reason I'm willing to go do this all the time is that it might save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, based on all the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my scans and stuff like that. And to me, that's being part of something that's bigger than me. It's incredible strength, you man. About, incredible. You, you want to talk about selfless? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. No, I, I'm actually kind of, uh, for once in my life at a, at a real loss for words. I mean, because we, we we teach selflessness in the military, uh, and 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 few people I think really understand the true meaning of selflessness, um, of of putting yourself out there uh, so that. You know, others may do better and you going into this, I'm thinking that it, it may not save your life, but you know, there's, there's good data coming from it. I mean, I mean, that's, that's, I don't know. That's building a legacy. That's building, that's, that's putting something on, on, on your name and be like Terry Tucker, the, this, this guy, um, the information that we received from him. And I, I, I do got to say like, if anybody is going to go through these trials and knock it like completely knocked down, I feel like it's going to be you um, because you've already been through quite a bit and you keep getting back up and saying, you know, well, what else do you have? Um, 
And one thing that I kind of, that kind of stuck with me in, in reading a bit about you, um, mind over body, right? Like you, your body wants to shut down. Your body wants to do this. Your body wants to give up, but your mind stays in the fight and says, not yet. And, uh, I, I really, I really like that, that concept because it's applicable in so many ways. I mean, from being sick to going to the gym, to maintaining your responsibilities of waking up and going to school, going to work, um, to achieving any of your goals that you want to achieve. Um, like you, your, your mind, your, you know, your body and even aspects of your mind, right. will kick in and be like, mm, not today. Tomorrow's a better day to do it. I don't want to go for a run. It's a little too cold. Um, and I'm guilty of, of these things. I think we all are, sure. but with, with, with proper practice and, and, and sticking to it and, and, uh, and, and all, I think, I think it's easy to, or not easy, but it's possible to achieve this overall mind over body and find our way to our, um, interpretation or our own definition of excellence. Yeah, I I, I would totally agree with you. There. Jerry Rice, the Hall of Fame receiver from the 49ers, used to have a saying that said, today I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. And when I was growing up, Bobby Knight was the basketball coach at Indiana University. And, you know, he had this saying that said, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching, you know, elite athletes to – be great basketball players with their body on the court. But what he was really saying with that comment is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than anything your physical body is, is, is going to do. And, and that's, you know, I, I don't want you guys or, or anybody who's listening to us to think that I don't have bad days. I mean, I do. I, I, you know, there are days I cry. There are days I get down. There are days I feel sorry for myself. I, I have those days, but I, I remember actually two stories. One happened back in the 1950s. There was a professor at Johns Hopkins who did an experiment with rats and he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat would tread water An average rat tread water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in the exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. So think about that. 15 minutes. You're you're just not going to fail. You're going to die. And the second time around, 60 hours, which said to me, one, the importance of hope in our lives that we have to believe. Maybe not today. Maybe not next month. Maybe not even this year. But at some time, our life will get better. And the second thing it taught me was that we all have a breaking point. But that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever thought it was. You know, our bodies can handle amazing things. I mean, Tyree, I don't know about you, but I've seen guys shot five, six, seven times up walking around, you know, like no big deal. Mm -hmm. I've also seen guys shot once like in the shoulder and die. So, you know, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. But if you if you think about that, you know, that goes back to your mind. What's your mindset? And then I have a, a friend of mine works with my wife who is a former SEAL and, you know, talks about kind of Goggins' 40% rule, you know, that if you're at the end of your rope, you can't go on, you, you know, you're done. You're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have another 60% left to reserve to give to yourself. So like you were saying, you know, uh, I don't want to go for a run today. It's too cold. Or I, I don't want to get off the couch and go to the gym. 
remember, you've got that 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. And I always remember that when I get in those ugly places, I always like, no, you've got so much more to give to yourself. Get off your butt and let's get out there and make it happen. Yeah. Um, so that made me think of, uh, so the David Goggs thing, that was in the back of my mind. I couldn't remember exactly the, the 40% rule, but that that is a big thing. Um, and, you know, and that's, and that's not to say that like some days it's okay. It, it is okay. Sure. So some days when it, when, when, when it's rough, when you're having a bad day, it's okay to just sit there on the couch. It's okay to not go on that run. It's, it's fine. You have to allow for that as well. Yes. Um, but I think you, 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 you hit on something that I think is extremely important. And so, in that experiment you know, where the, where the rats were placed in the water and they, they treaded water until they almost drowned and he pulled them out. Um, what those rats experienced, I mean, yeah, they, they were given, a um, this idea of hope that somebody was going to, that someone was going to come in and help them. And that, that ties into having a great support system. Um, you know, friends, family, um, other veterans, other people of your community, whatever it may be. Um, if you have that support system, um, then then your hope can be extended. Your ability to maintain can be extended because you know that there are others out there who are going through the same shit that you're going through and they will be there. Um, you know, it, it may not be right now because, you know, life, right? Life happens. But like that's that's why you see a lot of especially in the military community, you see a lot of veterans creating programs, uh, Facebook pages, social media outlets. Um, we recorded with a group called my veteran passion. Um, they do very similar work. Um, great work, uh, wounded warrior, things like that. That's what they're there for, right? That's what these communities are there for to extend that hand, to pull you out of that hole or to pull you out of that water, to prevent you from drowning, to show you that, Hey, you're going to go through it. And we all are, you don't have to be former law enforcement. You don't have to be a cancer survivor. You don't have to be a veteran. You can just be a person. You're going to experience hardship and, and, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's going to get rough, but hope is there. Like there are, there are people that can, that can jump in and save you and give me, lend lend you that hand. Um, but, and on that, and on that same note though, you know, sometimes Sometimes maybe not, right? Maybe maybe you need it right now and you're not able to reach out, but that's that's okay because you have established hope and you can hold out for a little bit longer and you can maintain that resiliency and you can you can push to the end and uh yeah, that's I think that's a that's a great message. Um so uh I was going to say we're we're actually over an hour right now. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, I think it's a good place to to end this one to be honest, man. It's like the perfect spot. You have the hope. Highest of notes. Yeah. I have to, we have to think of a title. I was thinking something along the lines of something with hope in it. So the, we'll uh, figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But something yeah. hope like I was inspired and, and, and I got lost in what you guys were saying because I'm like, man, there's just, you, 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 that's a lot to go through. Like my father, when he learned that he had cancer, he didn't have very much time left. But to, to for you to keep going and keep going and keep going and not stop because, you know, you have that family to take care of is it says a lot because a lot of other people in some particular situations wouldn't want to do it. And uh, you just got to have that hope. And maybe that'll be the name of the title. You got to have hope. Yeah. Or, sounds good to me. So, uh, Terry, before I let you go, you got anything to say? You have any social media uh, things to share for our listeners? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I have a blog. It's called motivationalcheck.com. Uh, every day I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought comes um, usually a question about maybe how you could employ that in, in your life. I have recommendations for books to read there, uh, videos to watch. You can leave me a message. It's all at motivationalcheck.com. Can I leave you with one more story? I know you're over, but. Oh, no, go for it. No, hell yeah. Um, So when I was at the Citadel, do you guys know who James Stockdale is? Sounds familiar. Okay. So when I was at the Citadel, we had a president by the name of James Bond Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale was the highest ranking uh, officer in the Hanoi Hilton, uh, the prisoner of war mm, camp okay. during the Vietnam War. And he he led prisoner resistance. I mean, he, they were going to use him as propaganda. He ended up slitting his, his scalp so that they couldn't do that. When they put a hat on him, he beat himself in the face. He ended up winning the Medal of Honor mm. for his actions during the Vietnam War. And I, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him. I mean, he was the president of the college. I was a cadet. And but I remember being at an event with him one time, and somebody asked him, "Who survived that ugliness? Who survived that brutality?" And he said, "Well, let me tell you who didn't survive it." He said, "It wasn't the big, strong, tough guys that thought they could handle any amount of torture, you know, or or beatings." He said, "Because you give somebody enough time, they'll figure out a way that they can just wreck your body." Hmm. He said, "It wasn't even the optimists." He said, you know, the people who thought, well, we're going to be rescued by Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter. He said Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter would come and go and we weren't rescued. And he said those people would die of a broken heart. He said the people that survived were the people that realized what they could control and controlled it. And he said for us, it was the thoughts in our minds and the air in our lungs. Everything else was at the discretion of the enemy. When we ate, when we went to the bathroom, when we got beaten, when we got torn, everything was at their discretion. He said the people that survived that realized what they could control in their lives and can control it. And he did that. for He was a prisoner for eight years. So imagine going through that for eight years yeah. and being coming out with that mindset. And that, you know, I look at him and I'm like, yeah, I've been through a lot, but that's a man that literally went through hell and back. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine eight years. That's, yeah. but I mean, that's a, and that is a good lesson learned though. Um, and that's, that's one of the things about, you know, I, I think in life we want to, we want to control everything. We want everything to, to work out how we want it to work out. Maybe we have these big goals, dreams, aspirations, and sometimes, uh, you know, on, on the road to those, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't play out how we have it in our minds. And then, you know, what happens next, I think is, 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 is your, your test, right? So like, do you crumble? Do you, do you break apart? Do you, do you fall? Do you give up? Or do you say, well, okay, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but here's what did happen. And here are the positives that came from it. And these are the things that like, I do have control of. And that I think does give you, um, the, the proper amounts of hope that you need that resiliency to, um, and plus like the lessons learned from failures, you know, what was it that Thomas Edison found X amount of ways to not make a light bulb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's just a matter of getting up and, and keeping on going. Um, so yeah, uh, Terry, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on with us today. And, um, uh, for real, like a lot of really great positive messages to, to come out of this episode. And, uh, we're, we're definitely, um, definitely thankful for it for sure. Um, everybody, uh, listening, watching, blah, blah, blah. Check out his book. 
uh, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. You can find it on Amazon, Amazon, 15 bucks. It'll be at your house in a couple of days. You can read through the whole thing, borrow it to a friend, and they can read the whole thing. Um, motivationalcheck.com. Um, you're on Twitter, right? Um, yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll tag, and, and when we post a show, uh, we'll tag all your socials and everything in the descriptions so that people can find you. Um, I have a, um, um, on my personal Instagram, I have a, you know, the, all my links or whatever. I'll plug a link to your, to your book in there. Um, and we'll do that for the, uh, the, the, the podcast Instagram too. And, uh, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll put all your stuff out there for sure. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to before I forget. Thank you for coming on Mr. Tucker, Terry Tucker. Uh, thank you listeners for listening to before I forget, please like, listen, share, subscribe and watch. And we will see you on the next episode. Say bye, Kevin. Bye, Kevin. <laughs>